0: Good morning. I'm very thankful for the opportunity and the energy. I've been a little down on the energy lately, so I'm sincere in my thankfulness. And sometimes by matters of contrast, it helps us. And when we came into the story of David a couple of times ago, we saw that by matter of contrast, we learned by David that God looks upon the heart and that we are to have a heart that desires God. King Saul struggled with that, King Saul's heart was selfish and desired what he wanted. And we'll see that even as we continue the story this morning. But even beyond that, the other point that needs to be remembered is that perspective matters. We saw that David had a real, a living faith that rested wholly on a God that he knew was almighty and living. And so when King Saul would look to the carnal, David would look to God. And of course, God would deliver David. David. And so as we come to chapters 18 and 19, we see the rise of David. He's becoming popular or more popular, very popular among the people. And of course, Saul's jealousy is intense, and he has plans to kill David. And that brings us to where we'll be this morning in chapter 20. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. What we've been trying to emphasize is these different pictures of God's anointing. And seeing them in David and then seeing how Jesus fulfilled them. But we've also seen the picture of how God would save the world. And we'll continue with that pattern this morning as we continue in the story. And so the first thing that we'll particularly be looking for this morning is seeing how the anointed one must endure suffering. God is showing that the anointed will have to go through suffering before they can ascend and sit on the throne. And then secondly... We're being challenged to see if we have the faith to follow the anointed one. It's one of the most, most powerful parts of the story this morning is seeing those that would follow David despite his circumstances. And in the same way, we are challenged to follow the anointed. So, as we look in chapter 20, I see at the beginning of the story, as I would put into my own words, that David and Jonathan are, are trying to get on the same page. David knows that King Saul has a desire to kill him and he brings this information to Jonathan and Jonathan does not believe it so. He says that his father had will and has told him everything and that if he had a desire to kill David, that he would have told him so. And of course, David is trying to get Jonathan to understand and so he comes up with a plan. This is after verse 4. And there's a feast the next day and David is to be there with the king and so David's plan is to, that Jonathan is going to tell Saul that David had to go to Bethlehem to be with his clan to make an annual sacrifice. And that if Saul grows angry that David's presence is not there, then they will know that Saul has changed and he has a desire to kill David. But if Saul's okay and there's no problems and he doesn't you know, inquire of David, it doesn't get angry, then we'll know that David is, is fine. And so that becomes the plan. But then the question is, well, how is Jonathan going to be able to communicate what he learns at the king's table to David? And then that's where we see the next part of the plan. So David will go out in the field, and of course Jonathan will come out, send out a boy into the field, and shoot the arrows into the field. And if the arrows land by the side, or, or that's where he tells the boy that they land by the side, then we'll know that David is safe, and he can come back. But if he yells out to the boy that the arrows have, have gone beyond him, we'll know that David is in danger and that he cannot come back safely and that he'll have to, to flee. And so as we come into this, you know, the king's table and we see what takes place, we see that the first day, David's not there, and Saul doesn't make mention of it, doesn't grow angry. But upon the second day, David is not there, and so Saul asks Jonathan where David is. And that's when we see that Saul grows very angry upon Jonathan's response that David had gone to Bethlehem to be with his family to make annual sacrifice. So if you look at verse 30 of chapter 20, we see in Saul's intense anger that he says to Jonathan calling him the son of a perverse, rebellious woman that he knows that Jonathan has sided with David. So Saul feels betrayed in this. And continuing to verse 31, we see more of what Saul knows or understands. And says, as long as the son of Jesse, so kind of using that term or phrase in a very derogatory way towards David, says that as long as he lives, you and your kingdom will not be established. So go get him and bring him here so he can die. So we very clearly understand that Saul cares not about God's plan. Saul has a plan of his own. He wants to keep his family on the throne despite what God has revealed and despite God, of course, having anointed David. Jonathan is faithful to God. He would see that David, the anointed, would become king. And, of course, he's going to remain loyal to David, remain loyal to God. And so, of course, Jonathan responds to Saul questioning him, you know, what has David done? Why should he die? See in verse 32, and so Saul takes his spear and throws it at Jonathan. And at that point, of course, Jonathan understands that Saul would do anything, even harm his own son, in order to kill David and bring about the plan that Saul has, not God's plan. And so, of course, Jonathan follows through with the plan that him and David had made, goes out to the field, shoots the arrows beyond, calls out, and David knows that he's not safe. And even we see even verse 38 gives David some more specific instructions showing him the urgency of the moment where he says hurry be quick do not stay supposedly speaking to the boy but of course the message is for David but even after he calls the boy back and tells the boy to depart Jonathan risks his own life and they go out there and they have an embracing and they make a, an oath and then Jonathan tells David to leave to go in peace and so that of course brings us into chapter 21 and this is where I would say, in my own words, David is seeking support. If we really step into David's shoes at this point, crawl into his skin, we could imagine you know, what's going through his mind and his heart. As King Saul, the former anointed, is seeking his life with such intensity that we know that he would do anything to have David killed. This would be one of those times when I think about like the story of Joseph down in those prisons when it's, you just have to trust that God is with you, but the circumstances could be overwhelming emotionally, and it'd be very difficult to focus on what has been revealed and knowing that God is with you. But that's one of the powerful things about the story of David. Despite these difficult circumstances, like looking before Goliath, where everybody else you know, quakes and is terrified, David is able to rest in a living faith that's in a living God, and he's able to walk rightly. And of course, that's encouraging for us. And so we see him going to Nob, to the priest uh, Ahimelech, and of course the other priest there. And when he arrives alone, for whatever reason, Ahimelech uh, is a little bit scared. He's trembling. So perhaps that would indicate something to him, but of course, David has to come up with a story. And he's able to put his fear or his trembling at ease and tells him that he's on a secret mission from Saul. And later we find out, because Doeg, the Edomite, who had been faithful to Saul, is there, that David needs to speak very carefully and not reveal certain things. Uh, he's hungry. His men are hungry. And we see in uh, verse 6, in particular, there's the explanation there. We know that the priest would put the fresh bread in before the presence of the Lord, and that would be God's appointed portion of the bread. But then after that bread was replaced taken away from God's appointed portion, that the priest could lawfully eat that bread, that that bread was then for them. And so David bringing uh, their hunger, the men before them, the priest at Nob, Ahimelech, does not take this flippantly. He inquires of their holiness, if they've been with women, if they're clean, uh, to make sure that taking from their own portion would be lawful. And ultimately, Ahimelech judges rightly and gives David and his men some bread. And so we'll come back to this controversy a little bit later. Now, verse 7, of course, is what I references why David's being so secretive. He's having to tell this story and talk to Helimelech in the presence of Doag, knowing that Doag would tell if he said something that might give up David's position or anything that might make David vulnerable before King Saul. But ultimately, David, because he left in such haste, has no weapons, and he asks Ahimech if he's got a, a weapon or a spear or something. And the only thing he has is the sword of Goliath, which, of course, David would have had previously in his tent after the victory, after they was, he was victorious against Goliath. And Ahimech gives him that sword, and then David and his men, they leave and they depart from there. And he gets this idea that they'll go to the king of Gath in Achish. And that's an interesting idea because the Philistines have... Such common enemies, but he goes there nonetheless. And when he comes, the king of Gath is, is terrified to see David. And we even see the reference that Achish acknowledges that David is such a way as the king of the land because David was the one that, quote, had killed the tens of thousands, end quote, of the Philistines. And so David pretends to be insane in the presence of the king. Uh, and knows that it's not going to be a solution to stay there under the protection of the Philistines. And so he departs from there and goes and finds a cave, and this is coming into chapter 22, a ca- the cave of Adullam. And as David's family hears, they come to the cave, and then listen in verse 2. This is one of those significant verses that, that struck me. It says, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to David, and he became commander over them about 400 men. All right. So now just considering the story, let's come back and see these pictures of the anointed that are in this passage and look at what this might mean for us today. So coming back to the the controversy, coming back to Helimelech and David's interactions and, of course, the giving of the bread. Now we know that Jesus points to this in Mark chapter 2. If you want to go to Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, Jesus uses this situation as vindication for what he was doing on the Sabbath when the Pharisees accused him and his disciples of plucking the heads of the grain and eating on the Sabbath as though that was unlawful. And we see Jesus' explanation to the Pharisees starting in verse 25 of Mark chapter 2. So it reads as such. This is Jesus' explanation that he gave to the Pharisees when they charged him with doing what was unlawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, quote, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat." and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So of course it's important for us to read this in a way to understand that Jesus is not saying that he did something unlawful. That would be agreeing with the charge of the Pharisees. Jesus' point is, of course, David did not do anything that was unlawful, and therefore I haven't done anything that's unlawful either. And so pointing back to David's incident was Jesus' proof that nothing unlawful had taken into account. So if we were to consider this, well, well, what's the point? What makes this different? And it comes to the fact that David and his men were hungry. Jesus and his disciples were hungry. And we know that God's law was not intended to harm man. And when we will look at Jesus' words specifically, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's the point that Jesus is making. The law was not put into place so that the hungry could not be fed. Ahimelech judged the law rightly, as we said earlier, and gave David and his men the bread, although under normal circumstances, that bread was for the priest. Now, and today we could illustrate that in several different ways and we would understand it easily. If we were driving to the church building to come worship God, but there was a horrific accident on the side of the road and we saw someone that was in dire straits that had need and we could help them, we wouldn't just pass on by. We know that the right thing to do in that moment would be to help that person in need. And so we would do it. We could look at it even... A different way, considering from the standpoint of maybe protection of family. If somebody came armed to our house seeking to do harm, seeking to kill our family, and we knew exactly where our family was hiding, when they approached us and said, Where's your family? we would lie. We wouldn't tell them, Oh, it's over there in that room, go kill them. I can't tell a lie. No, we would lie, and our lie would be justified because the law was not created to do harm. So Ahilimelech judged rightly. And of course, Jesus did not break the law of Moses. And Jesus did not break the Sabbath either. But the other key point that Jesus makes, and this comes back to the Lord being uh, the anointed, David being the anointed and Jesus being the anointed, is the superiority of the anointed. You can go back to places like Psalm chapter or Psalm 2 and see that protection or perseverance or preservation of the anointed is something that God's declared and it's going to preserve. God was going to preserve David's life providentially. God was going to preserve Jesus' life providentially. That was critical. And so we see that when Jesus says in verse 28, the superiority of the anointed, in that so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. All right. And so carrying from here, let's come and see these pictures pictures of the anointed that are there through David that Jesus fulfilled. So the first thing that we see is that David the anointed was endangered and his life was threatened regularly. We see that in Jesus' life, especially upon the Jewish rulers and leaders. And so if we knew it from David, we would come to expect it. And as we look at it from our vantage point, we see that it falls right in line with the picture that God has given us of the anointed. Secondly, we see that the anointed would be on the run and be unable to rest. That reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, when he said that the foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to rest. The third picture that we see here is that the anointed would have to leave Israel for protection and refuge. And of course, upon Jesus' birth, there's danger, there's a threat of his life from King Herod, and so they immediately leave Israel for protection, to keep Jesus safe. So there we see the preservation of the Lord's anointed. He will be protected. God will ensure that, and will be, bring about the means of, of doing that. And we see that in David, and of course Jesus fulfilling that. Fourth picture we see is that some of the people who... Or some people thought that the anointed was insane. We saw that in the picture of David before the king of Gath. And we saw that in Jesus' life as well. But what's interesting is that some of his own family members thought he was the same. We saw that in Mark chapter 3, verse 21. But I know that there were others that thought Jesus was insane too. If you really consider the claims and the teachings, some of the very difficult teachings like John chapter 6 there were definitely others that thought Jesus was insane. I mean, you either had to know and come to believe that he was the Son of God, or he was insane. And then finally, and this is where we will rest, this is where we will conclude, is thinking about this, the most important picture put before us as far as the anointed, and that was that David did not bring the elite, he did not bring the influential, he did not bring those of status to him, and then lead those, look at what the text says, that he called to those that were distressed, that were indebted, and the discontented. They came out to him in these circumstances where Saul, the king, the one that would be carnally accepted, was trying to kill him, and they, Those are the ones that followed God's anointing. And so for us, when we think this is our greatest hope, Jesus is our king. And he has called those who are distressed, those who are indebted, those who are discontented. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all fall in at least one of those categories, if not multiple of those categories. And if we'll put our hope in knowing that that is a good thing, that that is what compels us to a Savior, then we can rest in Jesus. We can rest in the anointed, and he will lead us unto eternal life. Jesus was outcasted, and therefore he calls the outcast. He understands the outcast. He understands us. Jesus was distressed, and therefore he calls the distressed. He understands us in our pain or whatever condition we come to him, whatever condition we may be in today, Jesus understands the fact that he became man and he suffered as we suffered makes him that great king and sympathetic high priest. He truly understands what we are going for and he has compassion like no other. He calls the outcast, the indebted, the distressed to him and we can come to him. That is amazing that God in the flesh would care and call those of us in that sense, that nature to him and that he would save us. That's what we saw in David and that's what was fulfilled in Jesus. And so this morning, if we have any recognizing that you're in that state, whatever pain it is that you bear, Whatever discontent that you have with this world, you're in the right place. We're together in this. The distress that we feel, even the distress that we bring upon ourselves, striving to be faithful disciples of Jesus, we recognize this is not our home. We seek that type of distress once we're in Christ because we know we have the power and the strength from God to sustain and do whatever work that it is that He would put before us. And so it begs the question: if there be any in this morning that have need, will you come? Will you come to the anointed? And will you follow the anointed? Will you be willing to suffer whatever it is that God puts before you, but knowing that you will eventually have rest? The only rest, the only peace that can be fully and completely given and given by our Creator. So will you repent? Will you be baptized? for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you will, please, come as we stand and sing.